hey, this is Mark. At the beginning of this episode, I want us to get on the same page. And, and this term will help us to anchor throughout the episode. So that term is race norming. Race norming refers to the practice of using a person's racial classification as a factor in adjusting the results of medical, psychological, neurological, or other similar tests or assessments. Just stop there and we're going to advance it throughout the conversation. Back in June of 2021, the NFL announced that it would no longer use race norming to determine the size of settlements to former players who suffer from CTE. In other words, the NFL had been using race norming to say that black players, former black players who suffer from CTE, could be paid, were paid, lower amounts than white players who suffer from CTE because their cognitive abilities are lower or started lower. In other words, they were saying that, that the black players weren't as intelligent to begin with, so therefore they should be paid lower. That's what the NFL was doing. That's not what I'm saying they were doing. That's what they settled on. That's what they settled on. And that's what they said they would stop doing. Again, this was in June of 2021, not in June of 2020, when the NFL and other institutions in the country were going through a racial reckoning. The NFL chose the path of writing, allowing players to write protest symbols and hashtags on cleats. They chose to have an all rap Super Bowl halftime performance. They chose to allow the, the, the singing and performing of the Black National Anthem before games. But they did not change the actual real racist policy of using race norming to determine player settlements. To help sort through this madness, we have Dr. Tracy Canada, who's an anthropologist and assistant professor of anthropology at Notre Dame. She's also concurrent faculty in African studies as well. We'll talk about race norming, anti-blackness in college football, and the importance of representation, all on the next episode of The Parlay in All Blue. Welcome. Dr. Tracy Canada, welcome to The Parlay in All Blue. How you doing? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate having you, and um, thank you for doing this. The thing that we're going to talk about today is your article that you wrote with Dr. Chelsea Carter. It's in Scientific Atlanta for anyone listening. You can go to the website, click on it, and it's right there. And you can change the fonts and everything for you older people to read it. So it's right <laughs> there. And it's a great article. And the title is The NFL's Racist Race Norming is an Afterlife of Slavery, which is Listen, the title in and of itself lets you know that our next guest does not pull any punches. So we will go for there. But but Dr. Canada, before we get into that, I have to acknowledge something for the show, okay. which is you are our first anthropologist. Okay. Well, that's that's not surprising. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's not surprising. Okay, well, good, 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 good. I'm glad it's not surprising. What is an anthropologist? What is an anthropologist? That is the question, right? What is it that I'm doing? Like, what is this thing? You mentioned the article that I wrote with Dr. Carter. We are both anthropologists. She, um, I would frame her more as a medical anthropologist. 
But the way that I like to think about anthropology is that it's a large discipline. It's a social science discipline that is interested in and hoping to, I think, at its best, celebrate the human and human diversity. And the way that it likes to do that as a discipline, because I think of anthropology as like capital A anthropology, like what it does as a whole. It's also looking at how structures of power interact with individuals, with cultures, with societies, with histories. And so to me, that's like a big, it's a a big idea of what that is. But then eventually, if you break it down, it begins to make a lot more sense. So anthropology is a four-field discipline, cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology, biological anthropology, and archaeology. So if you've ever heard of anyone that belongs to any of those four fields, as we like to call them, then they're considered an anthropologist. And because we have all of those different types of anthropology under our big capital A umbrella, we can look at humans and people and things, sometimes non-human interactions too, through a variety of lenses. And I think that that's what's really exciting about anthropology is that it does a lot and you can do a lot as an anthropologist. I am a cultural anthropologist, which means that what I get to do and the way that I get to do my research, like the cornerstone of what it means to be a, a cultural anthropologist, at least to me, is to be able to use ethnography, which is another way of saying um, participant observation. That's the method for us. And so that is like the immersive, spending immersive time with people in their place and finding out what it's like to be there, to live like this, to have the types of relationships that people have, what the day-to-day is like for a particular group of people. And again, that's called, in the way that we like to frame it, that's called ethnography or participant observation or immersive research. And I really appreciate that because what I like about ethnography is that you can learn from people, at least I think when done correctly, the idea is that you're learning from people in their place. You're getting to understand what their perspective is. You have some creativity in how you go about doing that, but it's really learning from people, not telling them like, hey, I'm the researcher. I'm the one that has a degree. I'm going to tell you about your life. I'm going to explain this thing to you. It's like, no, like, I came here for a reason. I wanted to know what was going on. I thought something was really interesting here. And I'd like to hear your opinion and what you think. And so for us, or at least for me, that means spending significant amounts of time in certain places. And it's usually like a year at a time, months at a time to really immerse yourself in a place and understand what's going on there. Um, To be able to answer these like weird research questions that we might have, like we found something that was interesting And so now we want to answer the question and then we see the details of what's going on in this place. And it's like maybe the details that somebody thinks are like super unimportant in their life or like just really mundane or don't matter at all. It's like, no, like that's the jewel right there. Right. And so as an anthropologist, we're trained to to pick up on those things and then yes, to make arguments about them. But really it is to like learn from people and to, to really understand what's going on in a certain place to then be able to highlight the fact that like there are different ways of living and being in the world. That's the way that I like to, to explain anthropology. Again, like I think that's when it's at its best. I think that in the way that I've described it, you can probably hear that that could go awry. Like that could not yeah, work clearly. out yeah, um, yeah, yeah. positively. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, that could be problematic. But I think at its best, that's what anthropology does. And that's what I try to do at least. And Zora Neale Hurston was an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, I'm assuming. She was a cultural anthropologist. Yeah, she was um, originally trained as an anthropologist. She was... Trained actually by, and I'll put this all in quotation marks, the father of American anthropology. He was at Columbia. And when she was at Barnard, and I think she had some, she had some ties to Columbia too. She, she worked under, his name was Boaz. She worked under Boaz and 
he thought that what she was doing was interesting. Like her ideas, her research ideas were really interesting. And so her earlier books, a lot of them are about her going back to Florida and collecting folklore and spending time with people. Her most recent book that was published in 2018, after she passed away, clearly, called Barracoon, is a work of anthropology. It just wasn't published at the time. How so? How is Barracoon about? So yeah, so the way that I would classify Barracoon is that it is, it's an ethnography in the way that it's, um, she's spending time with him. So if you know anything about the book Barracoon, it was, she interviewed the last living enslaved person who was brought over to the U.S. from Africa. And so she spent a significant amount of time with him and essentially told his, his story, right? So it's an oral history of his life. And it just wasn't published while she was living. And so they found the notes for it and they, they published it, I think, in 2018. Yeah. How did you get into it? What, what drew you to it? I got into anthropology and I will shout it from the rooftops. I was a student at Duke University. That's where I went to undergrad. Had no idea what I wanted to major in. No idea what I wanted to do. And my advisor at the time heard me talk about what I was interested in. And she's like, let me introduce you to this person. She walks me down the hall and there was a man named Lee Baker there. And Lee Baker is a, he's an anthropologist. He does a different type of anthropology a little bit. He's a historian of anthropology. So he like reflects on the discipline itself. But I met Lee and he was like, you should take my class. And I was like, okay. And he taught an anthropology of race class. And so taking his class, I think I took his class my sophomore year, introduced me to the discipline, the things that it could do. Again, like the things that it that can go wrong. That's really what he studies is how anthropology is and was a colonial and racist discipline. So I saw like firsthand, like like for the first time the, that I took an anthropology class, like actually how it could go wrong. But he introduced me to it and he was the one that that helped me figure it out, like that I could do whatever I wanted to do with it. He encouraged me to do it. He was there when I applied for grad school and I got into grad school. He stayed with me and mentored me all through grad school. And like, he still mentors me now. I saw him over the weekend at a conference. So it was all because of another Black anthropologist that I became an anthropologist. That's awesome. That's awesome. And now a lot of your, at least your current work, seems to be centered or immersed in in football and college football in particular. Do I have that correct? Yeah. Okay. So the way that I frame myself is um, I, I claim that I'm an anthropologist of sport, but that I work with black college athletes. So I like I, I look at the system and how that works. It is more specifically college sport and then even more specifically college football. But the people that I work with, and like what I'm actually invested in are the the college players and the the families that they create or the people that they claim are their families. That's really who I'm interested in working with and and learning from. Okay, so we'll we'll come back to some of that on on college football uh, a little later because I want to go back to where we started at least in terms of article that you co-authored in Scientific American about the NFL race norming settlement that happened and you saying, you know, this is, this is an afterlife of slavery. This is, this is it. So what, first off, step back and just give our listeners an idea of what happened with this race norming settlement with the NFL. Yeah. So what was really interesting is that when all of the information came out, it was to say that the NFL would stop doing something So in saying that they weren't going to do it anymore, they were recognizing that they had been doing it for years, right? So like, that's the first thing is that when the, when the announcement was made, it was to say that they were going to stop doing it. And the announcement was made on June 2nd of this year. 
the NFL announced that they would no longer use race norming in their concussion-related settlements. And what that traces back to is that the NFL had been sued, has been sued several times for lots of different things. But for this particular thing, they were sued in, I think, the early 2010s because players, former players, retired players, were saying that their bodies were physically impacted by the fact that they had played in the NFL, right? Like they were still living with the consequences of playing in the NFL and felt that the league needed to compensate them for the fact that they had put their bodies on the line and labored for on behalf of the league, right? Eventually, after all of that went through the courts, I think it was 2013, which was when the, the first like big settlement happened. And it was decided that the NFL was going to have to pay out. I think at that point, the number was around $700 million um, was set aside for concussion-related settlements, right? And if we think of 2013, that is around the time that CTE became something that people were talking about more publicly. And so that's how it fit into the conversation. So $700 million were set aside by the NFL that they were going to have to pay out to former players that were claiming that they deserved some type of compensation to help pay for the treatments that they were receiving because of the, the ways that their bodies had been damaged by participation in professional football. I think a couple of years later, that number was bumped up to a billion dollars. So by 2015, we've got a billion dollars set aside to pay for this, right? What happened after that is that the NFL had to come up with a way to determine who got money from the settlement, right? What type of injury did you have? How severe was the injury? How much money were you asking for? When did you need for it to be paid out? All of those types of things were ways that the NFL or were things that the NFL needed to quantify in order to pay out the money from the settlement. And so fast forward to 2021, June 2nd, 2021, it was determined that while they were quantifying who deserved money from the settlement, they were using race norming, which is an idea that black players are at lower cognitive abilities than white players are. So when they were trying to get money from the settlement, the way that the NFL was working to quantify who got money and who didn't, how much money somebody got versus how much money another person got, was to say that baseline black players ranked lower. So if a black player and a white player took this diagnostic test for the settlement and ranked at the same level, it was determined that a white player would get more money because automatically a black player was already ranked lower, right? He was already starting somewhere lower. So he had to demonstrate a much bigger difference in cognitive abilities. And so that's how race norming worked in this situation. And that's what they were saying that they were going to stop doing because what it effectively did was limit the amount of money the black players were able to get from the settlement, right? So the NFL has yet to release the numbers for how much money has been paid out from the settlement, who has gotten money from it, the demographics of who has gotten money. They have not released any of that data, but we can assume from the way that they have been using race norming and actually the, the very few payouts that they've actually done from the settlement that black players have either not gotten any money at all or much lower settlements than than white players have because of the use of race norming. So just to back up a little bit. So when race norming in this case is, is that when you said lower cognitive abilities, mm-hmm. they are saying that the they're by using race norming, they're saying the black players start off less intelligence. Correct. Less intelligent. Is yes. that right? They're, they're not as smart as. Correct. They are dumber than. Yes. They're dumber than. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. So, and, and that, that's what that's what the NFL was using to justify the size of the payments. And that's what the settlement. So say it another way. Let's say the 
average score on these diagnostic tests should be 100. That's what, you know, a 50-year-old should score, a 50-year-old man, and I'm making this up, all right, should score. And if a white player scored 70 Mm -hmm. and a black player scored 70, they're saying that the white players was damaged to a 70, right? And where they're saying that the black player may have started at like a 75 or an 80. Correct. Instead of the 90 or 100. Therefore, the black player's settlement would be lower. Right, because the difference between where he started and where he ended was smaller than where a white player started and ended. Yes. And so when I first heard about the settlement, I was I was just I had these mini explosions in my mind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over and over, just like throughout <laughs> the summer from June up until I really saw, I think I saw your article maybe in October. So I don't know when it was published, but I think it was around that time because I've been thinking about that when we conceived of the show, it was one of the things that, that we had on the board and wanted to talk about. And so I was looking for it and saw your article. The thing that I have not been able to figure out since June until now is that why aren't more people talking about this? And and I believe that there may be people within academia and there are probably people who are investigative journalists within in sports that are talking about it. I'm, so I'm not saying that there are people working on it or digging in or what have you, but for John Q. Public, Jane Q. Public, not a lot of talk about it. And I, I think that is that is egregiously racist. I mean, there's there's not a there's there's no other way to look at that other than racist. That's not there's no this it's it's just that I can't believe that there's not more about it. I I don't know. Um, what why do you think that is? I I don't hear a lot of chatter about it. And and let me say for the record, I have my own back and forth with the NFL and its racism whether it's the hiring of coaches, whether it's um, the whole blackballing of Colin Kaepernick, the performative hashtag Black Lives Matters and and all of the different things. So it's not like I'm somebody that's detached from the NFL. And, and you know, I like college sports too, for instance. Right, I, you right. Know, but I just don't hear a lot about it. Why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think one of the reasons is that the NFL doesn't want you to talk about it. The NFL is actually like a great marketing and propaganda machine. And so it does a lot to make sure you're not talking about it. The ways that people, at least like even in academia, even in, um, cause I, like I have my ear to the ground in academic spaces that are talking about sport and also journalistic spaces that are talking about sport. Anytime it actually comes out that they're talking about something race norming related now, because what, we're like almost six months out from when it was announced in the world of journalism. Like that's a lot of time, right? Not so much in academia, but because so much happens, right? So anytime now that it comes out, it's the NFL saying, okay, we're going to try to do this instead. We're going to try to do this instead. Like that has been seeping out, like little, little comments about that. But what I do think is interesting, and you kind of touched on it in your comments before is that when you have a system that is so racist, which is the NFL, right? Like it's hard to keep up with all the racism, right? Like there's there's a new thing every week, especially now that we're in season, right? Um, it is the fall. So they're always on TV too. So not that we shouldn't 
keep these things at the forefront of our minds, right? But it's not that race norming is the only anti-Black racist discriminatory thing that is going on in the NFL. It is one of several things, right? And so if we're not talking about race norming, we're talking about the fact that there are only three Black coaches, three Black head coaches. If we're not talking about that, we're talking about the fact that there are no Black owners. If we're not talking about that, we're talking about the fact that there's only one openly gay player. If we're not talking about that, we're talking about the cheerleaders that are raising all the gender discrimination suits, right? If we're not talking about that, we're talking about John Gruden's emails. Like, so there, it's not, it's just one thing that we're trying to focus on. There's just so much, right? And right. it happens all yeah, the yeah. time. Yeah. We are flooded with racist and discriminatory things that are happening in the NFL. And so it's just one of the several, which is why it's an anti-Black system, right? Like, that's why it's part of a system. It's not an individual event. It's not something that's an aberration. It's not just, you know, like, oh, we're going along smooth and then there's like a peak. It's like, no, this is the consistent thing, right? The, the consistency is the racism of the system. And so, again, not that we should ignore it, but like there's plenty of other things to talk about too. And so I think that that's, that's part of the issue as to why it, it was a big deal in June. People were really talking about it in June, but now we're talking about plenty of other things because so much has happened since then. Yeah, and they're going to have an all-wrap Super Bowl halftime. So, exactly. you know, the problems, problem has been solved. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to discipline myself on this, but there's one other thing that happens in February with the NFL is the NFL Combine. All I can think of is when I'm looking at that is visits to the Slave Mart Museum in Charleston and you hear about the, the sort of physical, I mean, the really invasive physical in examination. So on the one hand, I understand this is a a highly physical sport. And so, you know, you want to, you, every, there's some sort of physical testing that seems that, that, you know, would be expected. How fast are you or what have you? But when I see it, I have a visceral response of, wow, that this is, I actually don't watch that. That's the one thing I, I just can't watch it because it's, it's something that just it triggers me in, in a way that I can't watch it. So, but but speaking of that, you're not the only one. <laughs> okay, okay, I, I didn't think so. Well, and I know I'm not the only one. There are other people that I know that that say that. But speaking of that, you tied in the, in in your article of saying this is an afterlife of slavery. How so? That phrase itself is unfortunately really handy for a lot of different things that go on in the U.S., especially when it comes to Black folks in the U.S. But that's not our phrase, right? Like Dr. Carter and I did not come up with that. That is a phrase that comes from a Black studies scholar named Sadia Hartman. And the way that she frames her work is to think through the ways that all of the stuff that happened during slavery did not just happen during slavery. And then it, and then once slavery ended, quote unquote, right? Like all of the practices that were in place then just ended too, right? It's the idea that the things that happened during slavery have very tangible impacts for what's going on now. And actually it kind of disrupts this idea of linear time of like, we're just marching forward and consistently looking towards a particular future. It's this idea that things keep happening that are circulating us back to this time, right? And so when we're thinking through something like the NFL or something like just football, generally American football, as an afterlife of slavery, you picked up on a great one, right? It's the idea that the combine 
if you look at the combine, it has remnants of an auction block in it, right? And I said that you're not the only one to say that because if you watch the the new Colin Kaepernick show on Netflix, the first minutes of that show open up with that exact comparison, right? Like that's the first thing that he talks about on the show. Oh, it's a great show. I just wrote about it too. Um, It's a great show. And the, I mean, in the first, I'd say the first three minutes of it are that exact thing, right? Like making that comparison between the combine and the auction block. It's the idea that, if we're talking about the NFL, but it works for, for college too, the majority of the workforce, the people that are putting their labor into this are black, right? And in the NFL, it's 70% black and college it's about 45 to 50% black, depending on the year and depending on how they're, how they're quantifying people. But it's, it's more egregious, I would say, in college because they're not being paid for their labor. Right. And so that's that's how people make that comparison. Right. There are plantation logics that come up all of the time in the way that American football is played, the system that structures it, the the fact that there are owners of teams. Right. Even that language brings us back to a particular the time. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And so there are yeah. all of these ways that it's not saying that it is slavery, but it is saying that it is an afterlife of slavery in the way that black folks are dehumanized. They are used just for their bodies, for their labor. They're not paid adequately for it. They're the ones that are kind of disregarded, left behind, are seen as valuable for a particular purpose. And then once your body no longer works for the purpose of the team, for the purpose of the league, then we'll just find someone else, right? Like we don't need you anymore. You've aged out of it. You're too injured. It'll cost us too much money to deal with your injury. Any of these any of these ideas go into what it means to be a part of the afterlife of slavery. Yeah. You know, and and this is a different episode of, of the podcast altogether. But when you said that afterlife of slavery right now in Georgia, we have the Ahmad Arbery trial and it is not a leap at all to go from the Fugitive Slave Act to debt peonage and this in this sort of the vagrancy laws of locking people up and then putting them away and then the the adding citizens arrest into that and and that was still on the books here in Georgia last year and that's what those killers because they haven't been found to be murders yet so I can use the word killers alleged murders use this sort of citizen's arrest. I mean, that's a direct tie-in. So so thank you for that. I, I get it. Now, but but this, this race norming, is it unique to the NFL? The practice itself of race norming is not unique to the NFL. And it also, even outside of the idea of race norming, is just an example of medical racism or scientific racism, which happens all the time, right? So outside of the NFL, I think the NFL saw something <laughs> cute and shiny somewhere else. And they're like, oh, we could do that too, right? But race norming is used in different, in plenty of different medical specialties, right? People that focus on the lungs use it. I'm not a medical anthropologist or I'm not a, I'm not a medical anthropologist and I don't have an MD. So if I get any of these words wrong, I apologize, right? Um, but it's used when you're studying the lungs, when you're studying the kidneys, neuropsychology uses it. Doctors that work with pregnant people, like they use it. So it's, it's used in, in lots of different medical specialties. So our article came out in Scientific American, I think in July, and a couple of weeks before our article came out, there was a great article in Slate by, uh, she's a medical doctor, so an MD, talking about kidney, kidney transplants, race norming and kidney transplants. And the way that she frames her article is around a young boy, I want to say he's 13 or 14, who needs a kidney transplant. He is biracial. 
but because of the way that race norming works, he is coded as black, which means that he does not get a kidney. So he is on the list to get a kidney because he needs one. But because of how race norming works and because he has been quantified as black in this system that allows for this to happen, he will likely not get one. So he will go on dialysis and have the impacts of that as being on dialysis as like a young kid, right? But if he was coded as white, he would have been pushed up higher on the list and he would have had a kidney by now. So it's definitely used in in um, in whatever the medical specialty is that works with kidneys. Again, I'm not a, a medical doctor, right? But it like that's that's like a great example of where it works and people often talk about it there. But it is it does fit into all of these ideas about medical racism and scientific racism that are really based on the idea that racial groups are different, like fundamentally biologically different, which is incorrect. It is not true. Right, right. That is racist to think that. But medicine often relies on that and makes claims based on the idea that race is biological and that you can quantify differences between black and white people. And so it fits into all of these other narratives around medical racism that we have, right? One of them, one a great one is, is COVID, right? The ways that at the beginning of the pandemic and even still now, black Latinx and indigenous groups were dying at much faster rates than than white folks were, right? That's a factor of not race, right? It wasn't biological because of, it wasn't biological that they were dying at higher rates. It was because of all of the other environmental factors that were creating the circumstances for that to even happen. But that is a way the biological or the, a way that medical racism works, the way that um, black patients are not seen as experiencing pain. Right. Like like black folks can't feel pain like that's also incorrect. A factor of medical racism, but fit, factors into this. I was mentioning earlier that at its best, anthropology does all of these things. At its worst, anthropology is a discipline that is based fundamentally on the fact that races are different. And so we have, unfortunately, people that we have to claim as anthropologists back in like the early days of the discipline in the in America that would collect the skulls of different people and rank them and make a hierarchy and to say that like people with bigger skulls, which were always white, right? They always ended up being white people. Because they had bigger skulls, they were smarter. And so then they would collect all these skulls and put them in this order to, to make these claims, right? Like there are all of these examples that we can point to to say that like race norming, again, isn't an aberration because we have plenty of examples of medical and scientific racism to say that this is actually just part of the system and part of the place that we live. Um, and this is just one of the ways that it was used. And the NFL was not the first and will not be the last to use race norming because it's definitely still used in all these other specialties now. You know, it seems like, and in, in, I am not a legal scholar, I'm not a scholar on, on any sense of, of that, but it would seem like this idea of race norming, whether it's used in medicine or the way settlements are paid out, and I would imagine insurance companies use this, I don't know that, use it in some way or another. Um, it would seem that, I don't know, I'm, I'm just trying to find the amendment, 13, 14, 15, Civil rights of 1866, 1964. It seems like these are questions that, in terms of differences in, in the races and how we treat people, are questions that legally we would have resolved, but clearly they are still taking place in medicine and in the marketplace. And I, I, I'm not looking for you to answer that or, or solve for that or what have you, but the, I think that's what's so when I said I was really shocked about it is the layers of where this is applied, right? I mean, the NFL is just one sort of gateway into this, but when you dig behind it, it's really scary. And it's, and it's right there and it seems to be common practice. It, there doesn't even seem to be any challenge to it. So that, that, that's just scary to me. And that's, 
I don't know what do what do with that what you will, but it's <laughs> it's it's something that that's um that's really bothering to me. I will tell you the other thing that you said interesting there in terms of pain. A lot of times for black people, for sure, the idea of being respectable. I would probably fall in this category of somebody who told me to fall in this category, speak up for yourself, become well-educated and all of these things. But that idea of pain and medicine with Black people doesn't know class because Serena Williams complained of the same thing when she was going through her pregnancy that she was articulating that she was under pain and the doctors wouldn't listen to her. It's something that seemed this unique to race and it, and it goes beyond class. Yeah, it definitely goes beyond class, right? Like it is, it is a, it, I would say that it is raced and it is gendered, right? Because when we look at the black maternal death rate, right? And the way the black women are dying from pregnancies that aren't even considered high risk, right? Like they, they go into to hospitals and sometimes they don't come out and the way at the rates that that happens, right? That's not, sometimes that's rooted in the idea that they don't feel pain. It's also rooted in the idea that like, they don't know their own bodies, right? That like black folks are not human enough to even understand what's going on with their own bodies, not necessarily at a medical level. Right. But just to say that like, like this, this hurts or this something's wrong that we are not able to say that for ourselves and we're not able to advocate for ourselves. And so doctors don't take that seriously when we say that and speak up for ourselves. And that, again, has examples in the pandemic, right, of, of people that went to the doctor and said that something is wrong. And this was before the vaccine. So, like, I feel sick. Like, I know that this is real. I do not normally feel like this and not getting treatment because they were not treated. Ser- they were not seen as, as serious about their symptoms. It happens when women are pregnant. So then they end up miscarrying or they they end up passing away, too. So there, it, it's rooted in a lot of different things or it comes out in a lot of different things. But it's all rooted in the idea that the black folks are human. Right. And know nothing and need to be told about their own bodies and what's going on with themselves. Right. And I think that that also gets us to the NFL and like really in really disturbing ways. It's, it's a similar idea that carries across there, too. Yeah, you know, there was a a nurse who posted during the pandemic that said during her clinical training and when administering shots or what have you, said that she was told by an instructor very gently and lovingly and informing that you've got to press harder with Black patients because their skin is thicker. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that unfortunately that kind of Medical racism and scientific racism is is very real. So thank you for that. I, I do want to switch a little bit while we have some time to sort of what you your what I would what I would call your core, right? Like okay. uh, me knowing you all of now via writing for you know thirty days, uh, <laughs> right? Um, you are very you know pointed in in talking about the anti blackness in college football. So let's talk about that. What what about college football is anti-black? I, I listen. I I I look and Heisman Trophy winners are black, and I, I I see people getting drafted. They're black. I mean, college football. I mean, it's anti-black. What? what? Yeah, I I will stand by it. I will say it again. Yes, college <laughs> yeah. football is anti-black. <laughs> um, right, and I think that right. even to point to what you're saying, just because individuals are black, does not mean that the system itself is supportive of those black individuals. Right. And you can change in and out the individuals and nothing changes about the system, which is which is why it works the way that it does. 
I come to that argument because I'm somebody who my my work I mentioned before. I study college football. I work specifically with black college football players and the people that they claim are their families. But I work specifically in Power Five institutions, right? Which are the the sixty five institutions that make up the five major conferences. Major in quotation marks, right? It's a very particular set of institutions, right? They're the most profitable ones. They're the most popular, quote unquote. They're the ones that are always on TV. They get the most money. They get the most money. They make the most money. Capital plays a very important role for Power Five institutions, right? They need to make it and they make a lot of it the way that it works. And so that's where I focus most of my attention when I am talking about college football. And again, this is a thing that I tend to do with my work, right? I'm not a historian. I'm not a, a medical. We've already determined I'm not a medical doctor. I'm also not a historian. But I think that someone that does what I do as an anthropologist working right here, right now with people that are living, if I'm making these claims about the afterlife of slavery, then I am responsible for a decent amount of time, right? The very recent past is, a, is an amount of time that I think I'm responsible for. And if we look at the very recent past of college football, it gets us back to the beginning of it. And it has roots in college football was originally started in the Ivies in the late 19th century, right? And so it was a sport that was only played by white men. It was only played by white men at particular institutions. And if you look at the institutions that they were, they were like the rich schools, right? The, the Ivy League. And they, at the time, made a whole bunch of rules that were reinforcing what they wanted to reinforce, right? And if we think of the late 1800s, that was, you are, you are meant to be a gentleman, right? We are preparing you to potentially go to war, so we need to give you all the skills necessary in order to be productive soldier. You need to act a particular way. The other thing about these institutions, right, at the time is that they, there were no Black folks there and there were no women there. And so it was just a whole bunch of white men that were in classes, and then some of them ended up playing football. That's the, the root of this sport that we still play, right? If we look at the people that were supporting it at the time and also the people that were against it because at the time it had no rules and so it was very violent and players were just like dying left and right on the field. So if we look at the history of it and how it became what it is now, not to say that it is exactly the same because it has shifted substantially, right? Like if we look at where talent, quote unquote, is concentrated, like it's not as popular in the Ivies as it is in the Southeast, um, that's one example. The other example is that black players can now participate, and usually they are at least half of the players on a field. But it's still rooted yep. in this very white supremacist game, right? Like in a white supremacist game that was meant to exclude black people, right? And it was meant to exclude black people because at the time they were not considered human and they could not be gentlemen, right? Like you can't participate in our game because we're making gentlemen and you can't be that. And so the way that I like to, not like to because I like to, but like to because I think it's necessary to bring us back to that history is to say that that's what it's rooted in, right? Like it's not what we see now. We have to bring it back to that place. And once we bring it back to that place, we see how it is very much still structurally that game, right? Like the, the game is played differently. There are different rules. There's better equipment. Thank goodness, right? But a lot of it is still rooted in the idea that there are predominantly white coaches that are the ones making the money off of the backs and labor of predominantly black players who are often not seen as students in the way that they like to think that they are, right? So they're brought to these institutions in order to labor on a football field on behalf of their university, on behalf of their team, on behalf of their coaches who are all making money, but the players are not. Their bodies are being like destroyed while they're playing this game, especially at the level of power five. 
they do not get the same education that other students on campuses do. And that's just because of the fact that like, let's like travel. That's one easy thing to look at, right? The fact that sometimes they're not even uh, able to be in class because they're traveling so much, right? Depending on what right. time, what, what we, day of the week the game is, they might not even be able to be there. They might not have the time to do their homework. They might not have the time to meet with academic resource people, right? So and that's just an easy one, right? Like that's a gimme of the differences between their experience and, and other students that are on campus. So a lot of these things that people like to frame is like, oh, they have all of these benefits of getting to play the sport and look, and they're choosing to do this. Well, I, I don't know if they knew all of this going into it, right? So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, even if you're saying that they're doing all of this for the potential of making it to the NFL, which we've already kind of dabbled in is like not great, right? Like it's, it's not amazing. Once you make it to the NFL, it's actually very problematic. And the careers there are, I think, averaging about three years at this point. So even if you make it, there's no guarantees for anything. But the majority of them will not make it, right? I think the stat right now is less than 2% of them will be drafted because there's so many football players and so in so few spots in the NFL. So if less than 2% of the players will be drafted, and this is out of Power 5, what happens to the other 98% of them? who have already gone through all of these things that I've outlined, right? Like their bodies are now destroyed and they're only 22, 23 years old, right? Like they got different educations than the other people that have the exact same degree that they do. They might not have had the same amount of time to network and to intern and to do all of the stuff that's like necessary to get a job post-graduation because they thought their job was going to be in the NFL and then it's not. So like now what do you do, right? There are all of these ways and this is, again, an afterlife of slavery, right, is is that they have different conditions. They have different lived experiences than everybody else does because of their participation in the sport, which is only concerned with the value that they can provide on a field, right? And again, language here matters. Provide on a field. What kind of fields? This one happens to be a football field, but we can make very clear connections between that field and like a field that was that was needing to be tilled and worked on during slavery. Right. So that that's why I make the arguments that I do. No, that's that's very good. And I will tell you, you know, that one of the things that I tell people even right now that the the players can make money off their likeness, but that's not money off their labor. They're still not making money off ticket sales. They're Correct. still like the, the, the they're still the labor is still unpaid for. And I and I will tell you, you know, there's a book that I read recently is called The State Must Provide. And it's by Adam Harris. He's a writer for The Atlantic. And he talks about the intentional historical inequities between historically white colleges. And I have to tell you this, and, and listen, you are a guest on the show. And so I will have to, to, to go with your answer as somebody who just this past weekend, I was at my alma mater at a college football game. I went to historically black college, right? Is is the anti-blackness the same at a historically anti-blackness in college football the same at historically white colleges as it is at historically black colleges? And I don't know if I'm asking the question right. Is is there a difference from in your opinion as someone who's an anthropologist? Yeah, I hear the question and I would say that anti-blackness doesn't care where it is, right? Like it, anti-blackness is systemic. And so the way that Christina Sharp talks about it, which is is somebody that I read to, to use this, is to say that it is the climate, right? It's in the weather. It's just, it's so pervasive. It's just in the air, which means that it doesn't matter where that air is. It could be a Jackson State or it could be a Duke, right? Which is where I went to undergrad. What I will say that is different is that the institutions themselves are different, right? Like they have different histories and there are different 
reasons for why they became institutions. They often have different values and different ways of going about things like that. I can't deny, but is the structure still the same for college football at an HBCU as it is at a historically, and I, I call them historically white institutions too. Is the structure of football the same? Yeah, it is because there it's, it's the same too of, right? Like majority black players are not making any money off of their labor. They are, are trying to like be productive on the field and also be productive in the classroom, but they're still working and I say that very deliberately, they're working and laboring on behalf of coaches, on behalf of their institutions, they're making money for their institutions. And that's not even to say like directly, right? Like something that I, I grew up in North Carolina. So I know all about HBCUs and especially homecoming, right? Like I love homecomings. Homecomings are, are built around football games, right? Like not that people, I don't know about where you go to homecoming, but not all the time do people actually end up at the game. But it is a celebration that is in a way fostered around a game, right? And so the idea is bringing all of these people to a campus during a football game, during a time when all of these things can be celebrated and put on display. So is that much different than what's happening in Power Five? Again, the capital is different. The reasons behind it are different. Yes, I will totally agree with that. But are they making any money off of their labor? No. Are their coaches making a ton of money off of their labor? Yes. So like those things are not different about it, right? And so I think that that's something, and and again, I'm not a scholar that focuses on HBCUs. There are people that do that. Um, a great historian that's written a book about um, Florida A&M is Derek White. He has a book out called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I mean, it's about Florida A&M, Florida A&M, excuse me. There are scholars that work specifically in HBCUs or focus specifically in HBCUs. And so I would definitely defer to them. But in the way that I think about labor and exploitation and black players and lived experiences post-graduation when you play football in college, I don't see it as much different. Got it. Got it. So I will tell you just in this conversation, I am like team anthropology right now. Right. Perfect. That's uh, what we you want. Talked about, <laughs> <laughs> you talked about getting into it because of a black anthropologist are there a lot of Black anthropologists? How do we get more into to the field? That's a great question. There are a significant number of Black anthropologists. That's actually like a different part of what my work is, is to, to trace the history of anthropology and to reclaim different histories of anthropology. Histories being plural, right? Because when a discipline likes to talk about itself, it often highlights certain people. And I am now coming into my own as someone that's trying to highlight other Black anthropologists that have come before me because there is a history, right? You noted one of them. One of the main ones is Zora Neale Hurston, right? She, even, even in like public discourse, she's not often talked about as an anthropologist because of her fiction and all the other stuff that she did, but she was trained as an anthropologist. And I like to think that part of the reason that her fiction and her folklore and all the stuff that she did after after she was an anthropologist, right? Like quote unquote, after she was an anthropologist, it's all informed by what she did as an anthropologist, right? So there are plenty of us. There are actually two volumes of books that are highlighting anthropologists that were trained and actually got PhDs really early on. Because again, if we think about how institutions work and in order to be an anthropologist proper, right? To be a professional anthropologist, that does mean to get a PhD. And so at a certain time, Black folks weren't allowed to get PhDs. They weren't allowed in the schools. They couldn't get the education that they needed, right? And I mentioned before that anthropology is a colonial and racist discipline. You're talking about HBCUs. HBCUs recognize that. And so it's also hard to find anthropology departments at HBCUs because they're like, no, we're not teaching our students this, right? <laughs> um, and I can't be mad at them for that. What I think is 
interesting now and something that is happening is that there are more people getting more, there are more black people getting PhDs in anthropology. And when I talk to people that are like a generation or two ahead of me, they're noticing the way that they talk about it is there's a critical mass now of black anthropologists. And so that's people that are like, I graduated in 2020. I came out of grad school in 2020. So it's people around like around my age, people that in my age in school, people that are still currently in grad school. So they'll be coming out in the next, let's say five years. We have a critical mass now. And this is like one of the first times that has happened, even though we can trace black anthropologists back to getting PhDs in the early 1900s. Right. And so we're there. We've been here the whole time. We are trying to do different stuff in the discipline because we want to make the discipline better one, but we want to use the tools of the discipline positively to to point out all the racist colonial imperialist stuff that's happening right and come up with language in order to address that but there needs to be a pipeline and it's it it works for everything right because of the way and again like i think that maybe this is why sport resonates to me is because it's the same with grad school right like you don't make it to the nfl usually unless you've played in college which means that you also played in high school which means that you probably started playing when you were like five or something right it's kind of the same when you get a phd and that means that you got a PhD, but you had to get a master's, you had to get a BA, you had to be interested in it in some way, right? So you need to create a pipeline. And so that's what that's what needs to happen. And we've got one going now. And we do have more Black anthropologists that are coming out and doing fantastic, like amazing work. There's somebody at UCLA right now. And because there's, there's so many different subfields, you can do so much with it, right? So there's somebody at UCLA now. His name is Justin Dunavant. He's an underwater archaeologist and something that he's working on right now is the slave ship, the last known slave ship that was in the U.S., which is actually, so the ship that Cujo Lewis came on that was in Barracoon from Zora's book, the ship that he came to the U.S. on was recently found in Alabama. And so Justin is working on that slave wreck in Alabama, right? Like he's an archaeologist that's doing this cool underwater stuff. But you can see how like potentially what he's doing connects to what Zora did and then might potentially connect to something that I'm doing in the future. You know, like as anthropologists, we can we can speak across so many different things. And so that's what I try to get my students interested in is like, look at the potential of this discipline, right? Like it's hella problematic. Like I will not deny that. (laughs) But look at the potential of it and look at what we can do with it and look at the changes that can happen when we use this for good, right? And I put that in quotation marks, but like, what, what can we do with this that's actually positive? And how can we encourage people to join us in that fight? Because it is a fight, right? And we're all out here fighting white supremacy, (laughs) and patriarchy and all of these things that are trying to limit us and sometimes trying to kill us. And so what can we do as anthropologists to fight against that? And that's, that's what I'm hopeful for right now is that we do have, we've got a lot of people that are in that fight with us. Well, listen, we appreciate you, and I certainly appreciate you. And thank and you. Listen, whatever we can do to help with the pipeline, uh, we will absolutely do. Just to, so we can um, wrap up here, and this is a question that we ask everyone at the Parlay in All Blue as we as we wind down. And you've talked about. I mean, you you are someone who your field uh, and your and your passions. seem to go together, but, you know, I, you know, and that's a great thing, but what does it mean to live well? Yeah. To your point, I think I will say that I found, I found my thing and I'm lucky in that, right? Like I, I do actually really enjoy what I'm doing. And I think that that really worked out for me. And that is part to me of what living well means. I think that the minute I'm not passionate about this anymore, like 
it's, it's not for me and I need to do something different because that is part of me living well. My answer to that is multi-part though. I think that it is to be physically and mentally healthy and whatever that means to whoever you are. I think it is to be doing something that you're passionate about. And that can be tons of different things. But for me, this is this is my thing right now, right? Like I'm really vibing with this. And then I think the last thing is to be surrounded by people that I care about and that care about me, right? And so when those three things are aligned, I think that I'm living well. And when one of those is off, like I, I need to do something. <laughs> I need to figure something out because that that's not good. <laughs> Thank you for that. You know, there's something I want you to... to you are at Notre Dame now, right? I am. Yeah. Yeah. So you are at a, so back to that whole discussion. I should have asked this earlier, but this is important because I I want, I, I really want, I don't want people to leave this with, uh, oh, she just, she, she would never say that at a real power five school. It's the yeah. powers of the fivest. All right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Notre yeah. Dame. And, and listen, for everybody who's listening that knows me and knows me personally, I watch hella college, college football, especially black college football. I've, I've told, I, I shared this with you off camera that for a long time I had an individual unannounced boycott of college football for all of the reasons that you talked about. Because, <laughs> yeah. but you know what? And, and I think it was probably from like the early '90s up until a few Thanksgivings ago, where I just broke down and watched Alabama and Auburn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But it was because of just the, the amount of black players and no black coaches. And if you go on campus or in my corporate roles at that time, I'd go on campus and listen, those professors and alumni weren't bringing football players by the, to apply for internships or they weren't even bringing a whole lot of black students to be honest with you. So I just like, this is a farce. So I've thrown my own schedule of the show off, but I, I felt it was really important to, to get that in. All right. So now we're back to, back to the regularly scheduled program. And we're going to close this with rank the college town, we'll give you four, and there will be two questions. Okay. Four that you're familiar with. Yeah. South Bend. Yeah. Durham. Mm-hmm. Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which of those places has the best food and where specifically is the place to go in that place? Yeah. Okay. So food wise, in my mind, they're actually tied. I do have to tie Durham, North Carolina, which is like, there's some great food in Durham. Downtown has some like great spots. My favorite, favorite, favorite. And every time I go back to Durham, I try to go to Dame's Chicken and Waffles. I love their chicken and waffles. They've got some great coffee shops around Durham too. And I did a lot of work in coffee shops when I was in school. So there's lots of like random pockets of places that you can find in Durham, but it's a black, it's a black city. And I I love that about Durham. So you can find lots of good food there. It surprised me that Charlottesville, Virginia has as many good food spots as it does. And most of them in my mind are also focused downtown. But my favorite place, anytime I go back to Charlottesville, there is a taco truck that I have to go to. (laughs) And it's called Tacos Gomez. It's parked. It's not parked anywhere centrally. It's not centrally located at all, but it's got the best tacos ever. And they've got some great breakfast spots too. There's a, there's a pastry shop there called Marie Bet that I love. So those two are actually tied, which surprises me because I don't have many great things to say about Charlottesville, but it's got some good food. But I do I do have to tie it with Durham. But yeah, Virginia, North Carolina, for sure. All right. All right. Very cool. And if Jordan Peele were looking for a location to shoot, get out to, that's not an actual movie, but, you know, just just, just if, if he did 
and he would come to come to you and say, I want to shoot it in one of these places. Where would you say this is your place? That is an easy go-to answer. I currently live in South Bend, Indiana, and I'm from North Carolina. I'm from not around here, right? And so when people told me that I, or when I told people that I was going to move here, they were like, that Midwest nice thing is real. I was like, I don't know what that means, right? Like, Uh I I don't know what you're talking about. And it took me all of like three hours to realize what they meant, right? And so (laughs) there is something really interesting, especially somebody from the South, right? And like that understands that type of the, the language that's used in the South and how people interact in the South and then moving here to the Midwest. There's something, in my opinion, very strange about that idea of Midwest nice, but it's real. And I think that that would be anytime now that I, I think about Get Out or I watch it, it, it feels familiar because of where I currently live. So South Bend wins for that one all the way. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> Dr. Tracy Canada, we really appreciate you so much for joining us here on the Parlay in All Blue. You take care and we will be following you and following your work. Thank you again. Thank you so much. All right. And just stay with us for a minute as we go to our, our, our break and then outro. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.